Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Society for Armenian Studies podcast. I am Erin Pinyan, and I am pleased to be joined today by Dr. Hagnar Zetlian Wattenpah, Professor of Art History at UC Davis. Dr. Wattenpah specializes in the history of art and architecture in the Middle East, including architectural preservation, museums, and cultural heritage. She is the author of The Image in the Ottoman City, which was awarded the Spiro Kostov Book Prize by the Society of Architectural Historians. Today, we'll be discussing her latest book, The Missing Pages, The Modern Life of a Medieval Manuscript, From Genocide to Justice, released by Stanford University Press. Dr. Wattenpah, welcome. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Can you start by telling us a bit more about, um, about the project how you started, um, and how you followed um, a very live legal case? Um, So uh, in June 2010, I read in the paper that the Armenian Church in Los Angeles was suing the Getty Museum because the Getty um, had in its possession eight pages from a medieval Armenian manuscript. Uh, So I became very intrigued by this court case and as it evolved over the next few years I decided to learn more about the manuscript. So the book is a biography of the manuscript, an accounting of the court case, and an exploration of what Armenian cultural heritage, what happened to Armenian cultural heritage during and after the Armenian genocide. Great. So let's let's talk about the title, The Missing Pages. You just mentioned the eight pages um, we know from reading the book that these are the canon t- tables um, of Toros Roslin's 15, or excuse me, 1256 gospel book. Um, explain to our audience what canon tables are, their function, and um, the importance within the gospel text as a whole. So the, um, <clears throat> the original manuscript was a gospel, so a collection of the four accounts of the life of Christ. Um, and um, in the medieval period, <clears throat> they were often uh, preceded by highly ornate canon tables. Uh, and the canon tables are basically an index of, uh, of pa- similar passages uh, in, the, in the Gospels that occur in two or more of the four accounts um, of the life of Christ. So they are, um, they are a table of contents, if you will, but for the, uh, the theologians of the medieval period, they were extremely important because they showed how connected the four Gospels were and also made links between the New Testament and the Old Testament. And I think it's, it's also important, um, and I hope our viewers have the opportunity to look at... Um, look at the canon tables and see um, that it's not just, like you said, a beautifully ornate um, kind of uh, painted structure, but there's there's hard information in there. And um, those page numbers that we read, you know, as Armenian letters, those reference page numbers in the actual book, mm-hmm. in, in the text mm-hmm. block. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so your book traces... Uh, the life of a single object, penned and painted uh, by arguably one of the most uh, famous Armenian painters across eras, uh, Toros Roslin, um, um, to whom at least seven illuminated manuscripts um, are attributed today. 
Can you tell us more about Roslyn as um, kind of painter and scribe and um, how this manuscript falls in his greater over of painting and um, uh, what do we know about him? Um, Toros Roslin is an extremely interesting and enigmatic figure in art history. We know very little about him. There are the seven manuscripts that have survived uh, today that are actually signed by him. And they also have colophones written by him. Some of them um, that have interesting commentary by him on current events. Um, in addition to these seven, uh, there are a number of other works, three, possibly four, that are almost certainly by him. They're, they are not signed by him, but on stylistic and other grounds, it is fairly certain that they are by him. Um, another, so very we know very little about him. He, many scholars have noted that his name is very unusual. It is not an Armenian name, Roslin. Uh, is it uh, English? So uh, speculation abounds. Um, he uh, was active in the scriptorium at Hromgla or Rumkale. Uh, in the uh, scriptorium assembled by his patron, the great and powerful Catholicos Constantine I. Uh, we don't really know anything else about him. We know that he had the brother named Anton. Uh, we have no idea if he was a priest, where he was from. And after the fall of Romgla, his name disappears from history. If, and nobody knew him or thought about him for 700 years, um, except for one instance when a later scribe discovered one of his paintings, but it was only in the early 20th century that scholars uh, discovered these paintings and learned about the name Roslin. And of course, over the course of the 20th century, he has had a remarkable modern career, and he is one of the most, the best known name in medieval Armenian um, illumination, and he's also considered an icon of Armenian history and Armenian art, and there are paintings dedicated to him and novels dedicated to him. So he's had a remarkable revival in the 20th century. Fantastic. Um, so we know that the canon tables are separated from our mother manuscript. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk more about the, the identity of the object and what happens as it moves? Where is the object physically moving? How is it changing? Um, how is it fulfilling different roles when it meets different hands? Um, and and where? Where exactly is this manuscript going on its very long journey mm -hmm. from uh, Cilicia to, to Yerevan and L.A., respectively? Mm -hmm. So I was very interested in this idea of the mobility of object, which, as you know, is uh, a very lively discussion in art history today. And so I was interested in the movement of the objects and the various human and material contexts in which it was inserted. And in the case of the Zaytun Gospels, at uh, one point in time, a, um, in um, um, the early 20th century, the single object uh, loses its integrity and becomes two objects, the, what I'm calling the mother manuscript or the main manuscript, which is today in the Republic of Armenia at the Madanat Taran. And the, the canon tables, those fragments um, that follow their own path, their own trajectory through time and place. 
Um, and in each context where the fragment and the manuscript found themselves, they um, acquired new functions, they created new relationships uh, with the communities and individuals around them. Uh, we know that originally Toros Roslin created this magnificent, luxurious manuscript for the personal use of his patron, uh, the Catholicos. But since then, the manuscript has been used in Zaytun, for example, as a treasured relic, uh, an amulet almost, an object that has the power to accomplish things in the world. Um, and it was probably not used as a book that would explain its great, its good state of preservation. But it was used as a closed object with a dazzling binding that was taken out on special occasions for special religious or other uh, celebrations. And it was an object that imbued the town with its protection, is what the sources say. Um, so from that object today in both museums, both Madenataran and um, uh, the Getty, it functions as an art object in a museum. So it is handled in a specific way. It is appreciated for its aesthetic qualities. It is uh, compared to other art objects that are similar to it. Uh, so it, the Zaytun Gospels, both the, the fragment and the mother manuscript, have carved out a new stage of their career today as objects of great art in fantastic museums around the world. Mm -hmm. and and it's fascinating to hear you discuss that to discuss both pieces as art objects but also in your book um the canon tables uh, constitute a survivor object yes um can you tell us more about what survivor objects are and the signs that the canon tables bear mm -hmm. um as witnesses mm -hmm. to um many points of history so one of the uh, overall arguments of the book is that certain kinds of objects that have gone through traumatic events, genocide, civil conflict, atrocities, and so on, um, that's, that becomes part of their uh, biography, part of, part of their experience. And the, uh, in the case of the canon tables of the Zaytun Gospels, the, the fact that they have been separated from the mother manuscript the fact that because of the way they were folded during their travels, they maintain a horizontal crease. It's almost like a scar. Uh, and these, in their materiality, uh, the canon tables tell the story, the, their own biography. Um, so the idea of the uh, survivor object is that after going through such experiences, an object, you can consider it a work of art, you can consider it a historical document, but they have also acquired another dimension, which is that they have survived. And they have the power to connect us with events of the past. And they have the power to connect us with the idea of resilience and to really enable us to think deeply about what it means to survive an atrocity or a genocide and what it means to be reinvented in a new place. So um, objects like the Zaytun Gospels and its canon tables, um, I think we have to think about their biography, we have to think about their provenance, uh, and they, that's part of where their power comes from. And the people who have 
come into contact with the canon tables have felt that power and they have often talked about it. Um, so I think it is, um, it's very important for us both as art historians, uh, but also as um, uh, people who are interested in art to understand that appreciating an object as uh, through its artistic qualities is an important dimension of appreciating the object, but it is not the only dimension. Mm-hmm. Um, can we talk more about provenance and um, some of the... <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so provenance is the um, uh, the biography of an object uh, after its initial moment of creation. And in art history, as you know, provenance is both this field of study, of studying where the object has been, uh, when was it sold at auction, whose collection was it in, who inherited it, how much did it sell for, etc. But it's also a very specific kind of textual record that in very sort of dry and terse sentences, (laughs) short, almost incomprehensible if you're not in the in-group, tells you this history. So in recent years, people have been thinking about provenance in a very critical way. There's a wonderful book, in fact, published by the Getty, called uh, Provenance, an Alternative History of Art. Um, And I think it is um, a very interesting approach to understand how the later life of the object both transforms the object, takes it into new contexts, but also affects our evolving notion of the value and importance of the object. So obviously if an object has been owned by a king, our perception of it as being valuable, special, appreciated by refined people changes. Uh, So in the case of the Zeitung Gospels, their provenance, uh, which has existed in a number of different versions in the past, and one of the achievements of the lawsuit was to change the provenance of the op- the official provenance of the object. Um, it becomes a site, those are the provenance of the Zeitung Gospels becomes a site of struggle, a site of uh, resistance, a site for asserting a different kind of viewpoint about the life of the object, its function, where it should go, and who should have control over it. So it is, provenance is a seemingly innocuous, very dry, very uh, boring art historical type of inquiry, but I think people are increasingly recognizing that it is, uh, it can be very productive site of uh, understanding the object, and, but also uh, understanding the, the, the role the object plays in the social world. But what's not boring is the research that you did to complete this book. Um, can you, I mean, uh, I had the great pleasure of, of hearing you talk last night at Columbia and seeing some of your photos um, of your true field work. Um, everywhere that the manuscript was and its, and its pieces went, you went. Um, can you tell us a bit more about trekking the world um, to to trace uh, the steps of this physical object? Um, so to do this book, I had to figure out what my method was going to be. Um, it's, I was not going to duplicate the work that curators and art historians had already done on this object, and they have done a wonderful job. 
And I also wasn't going to relitigate the case because I'm not an attorney. So as you know, I'm an architectural historian. I work on um, northern Syria, southern Turkey of today, which it so happens is where the Zaytun <laughs> Gospel spent uh, most of its uh, 700 years of existence. So my method was in part to retrace the steps of the manuscript. Uh, and strictly, strictly speaking, you don't need to go back to the scriptorium where a manuscript was created in order to study it as an art historian, right? But uh, for me as an architectural historian, I felt that I really needed to understand the spatial context in, this, in which this object was created and what that means. So um, I, of course, first visited the mother manuscript at the Madinat Haram. But then I uh, went to Romgla, Rumkale in present-day Turkey um, to, to really try to understand and imagine what it must have been like for Toros Roslin to create this work um, in that castle on the Euphrates in the middle of the 13th century. And I'm very glad that I did that work because it brought me face to face with uh, the lingering effects of the genocide, the fact that uh, Hrongla Castle is there, it's beautiful, it's a beautiful setting. It has never been studied uh, except through some basic surveys. It has never been excavated. I'm sure there are many treasures buried in those hills. Um, and everywhere you see the, the effects, you see how Armenian cultural heritage is treated in Turkey today. It is not part of official discourse. It's not one of the many cultures historically and present that are thought to enrich a modern Turkish identity. It is completely silenced. And so when you go to Hurungla in this incredibly bucolic and beautiful environment, you see khachkars that have been mutilated, where this, the crosses have been scraped out. You see all this evidence of a very targeted hatred towards Armenians. Um, and you also see some remains. So it, it's very jarring, the, the beauty of the environment, the kindness and the hospitality of the people who are there. And these very real traces of violence, of hatred, of vandalism, of the targeting of cultural and religious um, um, artifacts. So it really tells you something about what genocide is and what and the role that culture plays in genocide and it is not accidental it is not the damage to cultural heritage in genocide is not collateral um, and I agree with Lemkin's theories about the centrality of culture uh, the centrality of uh, assaults on culture and religion um, as being central to the crime of genocide. And not all theoreticians of genocide uh, agree uh, with this idea, but uh, my sense is that um, assaults on the culture of the targeted group, the religion of the targeted group, the language of the targeted group are uh, central to, the, to other uh, atrocities visited on the targeted group. And that was very clear to me in Rumkale. And, uh, it was also the, the lingering effects mm -hmm. of these kinds of assaults was also very clear there. Mm -hmm. So after Rumkale, I also visited Zaytun, mm -hmm. uh, known as Suleymanle today in the Taurus Mountains and uh, also Marash. 
Uh, I was not able to return to Aleppo, but I have spent a lot of time there in the past. Um, and then finally, of course, Los Angeles, where the uh, can- uh, canon tables reside today. Almost as glamorous as medieval Cilicia. <laughs> <laughs> On a citadel, gleaming yeah. white citadel, yes. Um, so I, f- I find your project fascinating because it does straddle so many, um, so many genres and, and you work um, all at once, it seems, and very seamlessly um, in, in art history, anthropology, archaeology, law, genocide studies, cultural heritage. Um, and uh, can you talk a bit more about how that contributes to the readership of your book? How, um, how it, if it's, um, how it helped you write the book or how it, it made it difficult to kind of pull these separate pieces together and craft something that truly hits so many pieces. At some point in the writing of this book, um, I made the decision that uh, this was going to be a total history of the manuscript from its creation to today. Um, and it that's an insane project because it, um, it requires you to straddle all these kinds of fields. It um, One chapter is about the law and restitution battles in the courts in the contemporary United States. And that's light years away from the medieval chapter. That's about recreating the circumstances of Hromgla uh, in the scriptorium where Toros Roslin was active. But I felt that it, it all of these episodes in the life of this uh, astounding object had to be understood together and had to be understood in a continuum because we really needed um, to come to terms with how works of art or sacred objects uh, change over time. They change physically, they decay or they're separated into two uh, or they're transformed, new things are added to them. Um, and they also change in terms of the functions and roles that they play in the environments where they are. Um, so, um, did that answer the yeah, question? Yeah, certainly. <laughs> um, and today, of course, um, the canon tables live in the Getty. Um, some of us were fortunate to see them in uh, the Armenia exhibit here. Yeah, they at came the to New York. They yeah. travel. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, museums, I mean, by entering museums, we see that the case of the Zaytun Gospels and the fate of the canon tables is by no means unique to Armenian books. Absolutely. Um, and we see this, um, not even a trend, but um, we see it across book cultures. We see the single leaf on display, or we see them um, up for auction or in, in at book fairs um, for sale. So how can we... Um, what does this say about exhibition practices, mm. collecting practices, mm-hmm. and how can maybe we use your book as um, as almost a handbook for recontextualizing mm. uh, mm. these lost uh, leaves? Well, um, of course, in museums, especially art museums, and uh, the Getty is is an art museum, as is the Metropolitan, where the the canon tables were part of the Armenia exhibition. In art museums, traditionally, you 
the agency of display, as many people have analyzed, consists in presenting the objects as um, um, for contemplation to the viewer in terms of their aesthetic qualities, but also embedding them in exhibitions that tell stories, uh, for example, about canon tables throughout cultures, as uh, one of the Getty exhibitions was, or uh, Global History of Manuscripts, uh, another exhibition that the Getty organized where the, the canon tables were featured. Uh, so these are all really great ways of presenting the object and understanding it. Um, but they are not ways in which you pay attention to the particular his tortured history, tortured or not. Some objects have happy histories. Um, the, these are not ways in which the provenance and the biography of the object is uh, are presented. Usually from an art museum perspective, if you're exhibiting the object as an art object, uh, it's various biographical elements, if they don't relate to the circumstances of its creation, are considered more or less accidental or interesting but not critical to our appreciation of the work of art itself. Um, there is a growing trend among museums to really integrate the provenance and key elements of the life of the object into the exhibition. Uh, some museums in Germany uh, have uh, tried to integrate uh, the fate of objects during the years of the Second World War and the Holocaust back into the display of the object. This is very important in the case of Holocaust looted art, which is such a um, you know, key problem in art history continuing today, uh, so many years after the Second World War. So I think that constitutes another way of presenting the object and inviting the viewer to think about the many dimensions of its life. In terms of book art, simply because of the way in which a book is constituted and especially illustrated manuscripts, uh, it, there is a very long tradition of detaching leaves, maybe because the book is decayed and so you take the, an image that is in good condition um, even in uh, early modern times, there are practices among Armenians of taking earlier leaves of books and pasting them mm -hmm. into new versions of Gospels or other mm -hmm. kinds of books. Um, in the Islamic tradition, there is a uh, you know, great tradition of collecting fragments of the work of great calligraphers mm -hmm. from the past and recontextualizing them in albums, which are like portable museums. Um, in the 20th century, um, unfortunately, a lot of art dealers who were not really interested in the texts of these esoteric uh, practices would sort of toss the calligraphy part of a Shahnameh, a book of a, a Persian book of kings, and would be more interested in the paintings, mm -hmm. which were beautiful and could be understood by an audience that doesn't is not interested in bothering with the glorious uh, poetry of the Shahnameh. Um, so th there is a very long history of uh, manipulating books, removing leaves, transforming them, pasting them into new kinds of creations. Uh, and some books, as you know, end up uh, arriving to our own time with incredibly complicated histories of manipulation, recontextualization, transformation. 
uh, and I happen to think that these are very interesting practices that tell us something about how the book was understood at different points in time. Mm -hmm. They also show us that many of these books were not static objects. They were living objects. They participated in the life of the community, uh, and they were in complete transformation. This is very different from a certain idea of the art object as being um, complete, mm -hmm. uh, never changing, always equal to itself. And of course, perfect we know that perfect yeah. should be preserved. Time should be stopped. Mm -hmm. And we know that that may be a certain kind of ideal, but art objects are constantly transforming uh, on, because of climate, because of the interest of the collectors, because of the way they're the places to which they are taken, the way in which they are understood, re-understood, reinterpreted, or forgotten, or disregarded, or thrown away. So all of the all of these actions, to my mind, are part of the history of art and tell us something critical about how objects remain vital in our world in all kinds of unexpected ways. So I think it's this is an interesting dimension of art history and and more to um we were discussing this before but more to the point of how one works with armenian manuscripts in particular um those of us that work on armenian manuscripts are uniquely lucky to have such rich textual records that are self-reflective of the conditions of of when this manuscript was made, where the manuscript was made, um, and and who made it. Um, and then in addition to that, we have the second colophon, the third mm -hmm. colophon. And, mm -hmm. um, and you've seen for yourself that this, this active hand or this active ownership mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. really contributes to us knowing the history of the book. We're very fortunate with this habit of Armenian priests um, and other um, others, others as well. And so these manuscripts, Armenian manuscripts, carry their own archive. It's really quite extraordinary, where they you have an original colophon that sometimes will tell very detailed stories about the circumstances of its creation. It will have crop production, uh, weather, it's weather, date. Uh, of course, uh, pious invocations, yes. uh, theological disputes and uh, summaries of historical events. I mean, some of these colophones are, as many scholars have recognized already, are small chronicles mm -hmm. and are interesting historical documents in and of themselves. But what I wish would get more attention are the later colophones, the ones that are written by village priests in an uneducated hand. Mm -hmm. Uh, not by the kings and Catholicoi and great artists of the medieval period, but by the later owners of the manuscript. Uh, and one of the things that was very poignant to me, uh, especially at the beginning of my research, and this is why I felt that the story had to be told, was many uh, priests during and right after the Armenian Genocide wrote colophones on medieval manuscripts. And uh, so you write a colophon when a momentous thing has happened to commemorate a key event in the life of your community. And uh, so priests were writing colophons in old manuscripts saying, this has happened to our people. Uh, and um, like manuscripts themselves, our people has been cut up 
and exterminated and dispersed throughout the world. Um, so that was, it, it was very poignant to me to see how uh, these people were bearing witness to the events that surrounded them and trying to understand the enormity of the genocide and also the enormity of the task that fell upon them as religious leaders to, in their words, console the community and rebuild the um, you know, religious um, bases of the community. Fantastic. Well, you've just completed this project. What's next? (laughs) (laughs) There are so many amazing works of art out there that have amazing histories that uh, deserve to be told um, in a way that honors their particular journeys. I think I would like to go back to a project I've worked on before, which is Ani, the great medieval Armenian capital, which is also uh, the largest cultural heritage site in eastern Turkey. And it is a site that is layered with so many monuments from the Bronze Age to the Mongol period. It has mosques, fire temples, churches ramparts it's an extraordinary site as you know and in 2016 it was uh, included in the unesco world heritage list so i i've worked on ani and its preservation uh, over the last 100 years before originally i thought that the book would be about armenian cultural heritage after the genocide in general, and Ani would be a chapter, and the Zaytun Gospels would be a chapter. (laughs) But (laughs) it soon turned out that one chapter (laughs) was not going to be enough for the Zaytun Gospels. So uh, that's, but I have to think about the right way Mm -hmm. of approaching it. Many amazing people have written about Ani very eloquently and very powerfully. So I have to find the right point of entry for me and how best I can tell a story that has not been considered before and that can really invite us to think differently about this amazing site that should be at the center of all world histories of architecture. Fantastic. I agree. (laughs) Well, Dr. Wattenpah, thank you so much for joining us today and for talking about your latest book and your future projects. I'm, I'm already looking forward to reading it. Awesome. So. Maybe we'll go to Ani together. This summer I'm going. So. Okay. Yeah. Done. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for joining us, and um, we'll be back soon. Wonderful.